Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly-like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, and if you use the code PARPOLBRO15 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 15% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is pleased that football isn't coming home, as frankly the place is a mess and it would have been embarrassing for it to see it like this. I'm Tina Duyeb and this week as Home Secretary and walking kick in the shins Pretty Patel condemns those who sent abuse to England players after the Euros final saying racism has no place in our country. I want to know if that's true. Did the Home Office sponsor racism though for a special visa because it definitely got settled status far quicker than most decent humans. Football is unfortunately not coming home, though as England have never actually won the European Championship, it wouldn't have been coming home in the first place, it would have been arriving here from Europe to live for three years and the Home Office would no doubt have done its best to stop that from happening. Because the three players who didn't score penalties in the final were black, they have been subjected to horrific amounts of abuse online, as is what happens with English football depressingly. Several of humanity's most useless wastes of skin said it was all because they took the knee in support of Black Lives Matter. Except it's the first time in 55 years that the England team has made it to the final of a national tournament and the team who won, Italy, also took the knee. So if anything, combating racism potentially really helped stretch the hamstrings and they should have been taking the knee in half-time too and during every single whistleblow. 
keep politics out of football, often comes the cry of many who are racist towards non-white players, which is actually a type of racial politics that they're using in football, increasingly making it more political the instant they do. It is, of course, also the fault of politicians, from former health secretary and man-made-of-things-you-collect around the plug-in-the-kitchen sink, Matt Hancock, when last year, in the early stages of the pandemic, he told footballers that they must do their bit. Then footballers successfully got kids the free school meals the government wouldn't, supported tons of charities, and just a few days ago said they'd give their Euros fee to the NHS Heroes charity while also playing matches, therefore doing their bit as well as the government's too. Meanwhile, all the Conservatives seemed to manage during the pandemic were own goals while repeatedly moving goalposts in order to let their friends score. If politicians only did their jobs properly, then footballers wouldn't have to do any bloody politics at all. You will likely remember mere weeks ago, the Prime Minister and mouse-bitten broken punchbag Boris Johnson refused to condemn fans, if you can call them that, booing England players for taking the knee. But he did also say at the time he wanted the whole country behind them. And that makes me wonder if he's confused football with Panto this entire time, and that's why he attended the Euro matches, looking like a toddler who's been allowed to dress themselves that day. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, said last month that fans have a right to boo and it was up to them because the only human rights she's ever keen to support are the ones that allow people to make someone else feel shit. The right to seek refuge from torture and harm, fuck that, says Pretty, seems a bit much. The right to yell abuse at someone doing their job or the right to snatch an ice cream from a baby or fling a puppy into a river, then she's there with a placard demanding its safety in our national laws. And I can see why the government felt booing England was OK. I mean, it must be threatening and strange for them to have seen someone like Gareth South doing well in his job because he's had a lifetime of experience in it. Whereas, had the England manager been government appointed, they'd have gone for a pal who'd never heard of football, but thought that they might once have seen one in a book in their grandfather's mansion that was built by indentured servants. The Queen, you know, like if a raisin had a hat, sent Southgate a message praising him for his spirit, commitment and pride before the finals match. And Boris Johnson must have been jealous seeing that, as two of those qualities he could never dream of having, and the first he only has in a cabinet in order to get him through Cobra meetings. The whole England team were actively campaigning against racism throughout the tournament, helping kids in poverty and generally being lovely while also still gaining public support, which ruins the Conservative ideology of treat and mean, keep them keen. And so, of course, they were quick to support the booing of anyone who might pop the bubble of nationwide Stockholm syndrome that we're in. But by being anti-anti-racist, or as we used to say in the old days before these new PC terms came in, massively racist, it poured sick on the sea of sick that formed into a big vomit tsunami by Sunday, leading to England fans trashing central London with one putting a lit flare up his bum, the kind of distress signal that really describes Britain right now. Help, we are up our own arse and things are definitely on fire. Police didn't intervene, but I suppose they had to judge if trouble was being caused, and it was only men being aggressive and racist with their vandalism, and no one was holding a candle or remembering a woman that was murdered, so they didn't need to step in. As I watched footage of hundreds of idiots storm into Wembley without tickets, I realised that this is us now, the country where the only way we could ever have a real revolution was if we spread the word that there was free beer inside Westminster and it would run out if you didn't get in there quick. While the Prime Minister wrote his letter to the England manager saying that he and the team had lifted the spirits of the whole country, we all knew that thanks to the endless divisive culture war bullshit, the outcome of the game would mean either angry racist violent riots or happy racist violent riots. England losing to penalties against Italy in the final should be a moment where everyone, yes, even people like me who do just think, well, it's just a game and not really that important in the grand scheme of the universe, but even people like me all say... What good boys they are, and didn't they do goddamn well, in fact, better than everyone else in the last 55 years? 
Instead, though, our nation thrives on disappointment and condemnation because that's all we know and continue to vote for. We can't celebrate something actually going well if it doesn't result in a trophy because that would demean all the celebrations we've been having about things that are completely useless and detrimental. I mean, you can't compare the successes of young people who also do so much for charity next to, say, the festival of Brexit Britain. Otherwise, it would just make everyone really realise the latter is spending a lot of money to cheer on the death of our agriculture sector and longer airport queues. Hey everyone, those boys are a British success, just like the way we've contained Covid, so there's only tens of thousands of new infections every day. It somewhat punctures the winning image, if part of it that has nothing to do with you is actually doing very well compared to your relentless bonfire of turds that you've put a bow on. Similarly, what if people realise that missing one penalty isn't the worst thing in the entire world and is actually nowhere near as bad as letting 150,000 people die? Can you imagine how society might crumble? If it isn't implicit that Marcus Rashford not scoring immediately wipes him out making untold amounts of children's lives better, then people might question other elements of life and how on earth would we function? So, of course, the Prime Minister now says the England team deserve to be lauded as heroes. You know, just ones you boo, obviously. Anti-heroes, I guess. He said shame on you to those who said racism and that they should crawl back under a rock, which is where I guess they live in between football and voting Conservative, and it really sheds light on the housing crisis right now. Maybe they're just racist out of tiredness if they have to sleep under a rock. Yeah? And the Home Secretary said she's disgusted by all the abuse online, probably because preferably she likes to save it for real life when shoving people on a plane at midnight with no legal representation. I'll give both the smallest benefit of doubt though, because how on earth are Patel or Johnson supposed to know that actions have consequences when absolutely none of theirs so far have? There's no way they'd know that saying people can do racisms will come back to bite them when having meetings that breach national security while you're meant to be on holiday has just resulted in an even bigger and better job. It's why Covid restrictions will be lifted next week and the health secretary and cruel love child of Ernie and Bert, Sajid Javid, has said that doing that is the most responsible thing that they could do. Which I suppose it is if you consider that they're completely incapable of doing anything even vaguely more responsible than the worst thing you can imagine, which is of course missing a penalty. It's not the end of the road, said Javid, but the start of a new phase of continued caution while we live with the virus. And hey, we've all had some pretty awful flatmates before, but this is kind of the same as willingly letting a serial killer lodge at your home and then saying it's best to be cautious so leave all the doors unlocked and our favourite knives out on display. Javid has already said that current restrictions will be at 100,000 infections a day by August, so clearly the incentive to scrap all the remaining precautions is to try and beat that number until everyone in the UK has Covid, which will save us as you definitely can't get it if you've already got it or are dead. It's very much a close your eyes and maybe it'll go away tactic, with the government hoping that if no one gives Covid the oxygen of publicity, it will just sort of vanish and start a TikTok channel instead. There's no risk-free way forward, apparently, so I guess we may as well do all the risks all at once. Fuck it, why not send everyone a mandatory dangerous scorpion to carry around as well? Because if you don't carry one now, when will you? Maybe also make sure you're transporting cyanide tablets with your mouth when you travel, or juggle knives with your eyes closed, because there's no risk-free way of doing those as well, so you may as well go out and do it all at once. While the government are taking all the risks, they also want you to know that personally it's up to you not to, as they will be personally careful while sitting in their personally chauffeur-driven cars. It's expected that people wear face masks in crowded indoor spaces, but then it's also expected that the government are vaguely competent and they've never managed that. All they ever do is base policies on the expectations that people will be more responsible than they are, forgetting that these are the people that voted them in in the first place and will willingly put flares up their bum. Of course, Boris Johnson says the plan is reasonable and balanced, but from him, a man that's never managed to be either of those things, you have to translate that as meaning cheap and on a very precarious tightrope. 
If you're double jabbed or under 18, you won't have to self-isolate if you get pinged but don't have symptoms. I mean, that is from August the 16th, though, so it's possible that the real plan between now and then is everyone will either be ill and unable to go out or be told to self-isolate, and that way it's not a national lockdown but many independent ones, which by allowing means the government are actually empowering the people, you see? From August the 16th, the double jabbed and under 18s will be able to do what they like, while 18 to 30 year olds will have to stay in, presumably as a clever idea to keep them safe so that when everyone who owns a property has died off, then they can emerge and have a life again. If your 18th birthday is in August, it'll be the first year you'll be able to celebrate by being told you can't go to the pub, or well, anywhere at all. The fully vaxxed also won't need to quarantine after travelling to a country on the amber list, which means only 20% of 18 to 29 year olds will be able to take benefit of that. Luckily, they can't afford to go on holiday anyway after last year or probably ever again, so we'll just have to rely on the older generations doing their tour of duty and getting to relax for everyone after their stressful year of gardening or getting mortgage breaks, and let's hope that they're thoughtful enough to bring back variants for everyone as a souvenir. It's also why Transport Secretary and a man who can aptly be described by the noise, uh, Grant Shapps, has decided that the best solution to the problem of our current shortage of heavy goods vehicle drivers is just to let the ones that will do it do longer hours so they can do even more. Yeah, great plan, Shapples, and definitely no way that'll cause any problems. It just means the drivers that are left can drop off one by one due to sleep-deprived crashes until there's only one lorry driver left and they can become King Lorry and never sleep again, roaming the motorways like a remake of Jewel. The lorry shortages are entirely caused by the heady combo of Brexit and Covid, but rather than fix those things, it's just easier to wipe out all lorry drivers too, after which they'll be able to blame British people for being too lazy to lug their own fresh fruit and veg across the channel and down the M1 all by themselves twice a week. As we know, not all those things are the government's fault though, as we're expected to dodge Covid particles on our own, while also being told to go back to work, and Brexit not going to a plan that wasn't there, as we all know, is the fault of the negotiators who worked under former Prime Minister and woman made of coat hangers, Theresa May. Well, at least that's what Lord David Frost, a man who I think has now been slowly collapsing for a thousand years, that's what he says, so it must be true. Like like when he said the Northern Ireland Protocol that he signed and Johnson said was the best deal ever, like when Frost said that was something the EU needed to fix. Well, now they don't, as it's to do with the negotiators that didn't negotiate that bit and instead got a deal that might have worked better had Johnson not scrapped it. Ugh, how stupid and inconsiderate of them. If only they could have done a shit stupid deal that had Boris Johnson's name all over it, and then maybe just totally have gone with it. They really should have been able to predict the future better, and it's entirely their fault for not being trained soothsayers. The EU have now asked for that £40 billion bill that Johnson in the past said if they wanted it, they could go whistle, presumably because based on much of his and his cabinet's behaviour, that's the only noise that they respond to. It is a legal obligation, though, that the UK pay this sum, but of course Johnson has said he doesn't recognise it, though that is probably because he never sees amounts of money that big, as it's usually donors that pay them for it. Speaking of which, an inquiry into Johnson's holiday to Mustique a couple of Christmases ago has concluded that his account of who paid for it was accurate and complete, but he got a telling off for not providing details earlier. Yeah, that's him, Donnie's totes going to have to resign. Ah, no, sorry, it means absolutely nothing has happened, and everyone's cool that he got favours by a car phone warehouse donor, and there's no questions as to how that may affect any government policies, and when there's a big bill to make sure everyone buys a massive brick-like car phone again, even though they don't have a car, everyone will go, oh, I wonder where that idea came from, maybe it's good, and we'll all carry on in stupid land. Because there are no concerns about consequences for this lot, if you behave like a total irresponsible arsehole after hearing the government cheer you from the sidelines, then it's your fault for not doing what was expected. This week, Johnson will make a speech about levelling up and uniting the country, which is expert-level trolling, and will only really make sense if he's intending to bring people together in a, in a big brawl on Parliament Square, where he can sneak off Cersei-style in the midst of it and go fly to a Caribbean island until it's all over. Paid for by Blockbuster Video or Woolworths, probably. 
These psychological blame games the government play or accidentally play, no one really knows if they have a clue what they're doing or if it's intentional, but the ones that they play with the country, they're the kind of emotional abuse that would only really be good if you were hoping to get a whole nation into professional ice skating. But still, at least they've never missed a penalty, right? Labour leader and industrial storage locker unit Keir Starmer has told Boris Johnson that he's failed the test of leadership, which is probably because if there was one, the Prime Minister would have paid someone else to do it for him. Though to be fair, Starmer would probably fail the theory. Starmer said inactions of leaders have consequences, which he must personally know to be true as he's barely done anything for a year apart from attack his own party. Actually, that's not completely correct, as this week the opposition party decided they would play the Conservatives at their own game and actively reinstated Trevor Phillips. No, not the one from Grand Theft Auto V, that'd be acceptable. I mean, the one that has the facial expression of someone always trying to suppress wind and who was suspended from the Labour Party for Islamophobic comments saying that Muslims were not like us, which is only not racist if Trevor Phillips is an alien. Phillips was reinstated without the National Executive Committee knowing or the Muslim investigator who was looking into the claims made against him and hasn't yet concluded them, and it all happened before the Batley and Spen vote that it may have affected, but conveniently, it wasn't announced till afterwards, one week before Phillips started his new Sunday morning politics show. Labour have called for the government to take responsibility for racist abuse spurred on by their comments, so maybe they're just hoping the Conservatives will take the flack for their members too. In other news, the Chancellor of rejected Ardman creation, Rishi Sunak, is scrapping the £20 universal credit uplift that now many people rely on. It'll be happening in the autumn, with Sunak saying it was always intended to be a temporary measure, because I guess you can't have people actually affording to pay bills and eat forever, or it just gets dull. I'm not saying it's a terrible decision, but even former Work and Pensions Secretary and Angry Thumb, Ian Duncan Smith, has said that Sunak needs to rethink it, and he's someone who'd tell people they were fit for work even if they died, because at least they could be someone's draft excluder. Sunak says that going forward the best way to help people in poverty is to get them into work and make sure those jobs are well paid, but as there aren't many of those places right now and the furlough is about to end, I feel this is a bit like trying to help people deal with flooding by taking away all their flood defences right now, but promising in the future the nearby lake will disappear from climate change, so they should really be grateful. Sunak is exactly the type of parent who'd tell his kids they can't have a toy as it's too expensive and they must know the value of money, and then take them with him to buy his 15th Porsche. There may also be changes to triple lock pensions, which are meant to rise by 8% next year, but Sunak has hinted that actually they could be cut, which I think is a great idea, but mainly because it will kill off their voter base. The Chancellor says it will be based on fairness for pensioners and taxpayers, which, I mean, they're often the same thing, unless you're Sunak and all the pensioners you know live in tax havens. The terrifyingly authoritarian policing bill has passed its third reading in the Commons, with all 357 Conservatives voting to allow police to arrest protesters if they are too noisy and annoying. On the plus side, they should hopefully be able to arrest the Prime Minister during the first PMQs after it reaches Royal Assent. Well, I'm definitely going to call the cops anyway just to complain about him being loud and irritating. The Nationality and Borders Bill was also introduced last week, which, if and when it's passed, will make it illegal to arrive knowingly in the UK without permission. But I reckon there must be a loophole if anyone seeking asylum gets wasted just before they reach shore and blacks out. That way they can claim they've got no idea where they are or how they got there, but it was a proper laugh and they should get away with it, especially if they're wearing an England shirt. Conservative MP and mythical creature children are told lives in a well, Andrew Bridgden, said that the bill was necessary as the indigenous population of the UK are not tolerating immigration anymore. Who's the indigenous population, Andrew? What exactly do you mean by that? Does he mean him? Because I suppose he certainly looks like the product of many years of inbreeding and a lack of evolution. I think it'd have done his family really well to get bonked by a Viking, but I guess all the Norse invaders probably assumed the Bridgens were trolls and steered clear. Bridgen is actually married to a Serbian immigrant, so either he's so thick he thinks Serbia are the bits just on the edges of a city, or it could be that he's thoroughly unhappy and hoping this will be cheaper for him than a divorce. 
Lastly, the UK may soon ban boiling lobsters alive as government ministers acknowledge that crustaceans and mollusks are sentient beings too. Of course, they have loads of sympathy for spineless, grabby creatures who struggle when in hot water. And man who, despite all his money, still looks like someone haphazardly peeled the skin off a dead lion, Richard Branson, has won the billionaire space race by flying in his rocket plane 53 miles above the Earth. Well, yeah, I suppose he had to, didn't he? As that's the only place left where he's not a tax exile. Howdy, Parpol Broads. How are you getting on in this, the week after England lost more things? Uh, I'm being a dick, actually. I, it's, honestly, I, I couldn't give a shit about football, even though I think that all the current England teams seem like absolutely awesome human beings. I like them as people. Uh, I don't really care about the sports. I felt I should watch, because the world was, and um, I spent the whole time complaining that it was going on far too long, because I had an early start uh, on this Monday, and I was like, it's getting late, and I've got to get up in the morning. Um... What a whiner, huh? I mean, my big problem, I've probably said this before on the show, but my big problem is that you go through all the anxiety and stress of whether your team win or not, you still got to go through it all again in the next tournament. It never ends, does it? You're like, yeah, even if you've won, your team still has to win it again and again and again and again. It never ends. Never. It goes on forever. I'm just saying that maybe the way to stop the violence, aggression and stupidness is just have one big final match and then whoever's won has just won, right, forever, and whoever's lost has just lost and then you can move on. Yeah? Who's with me? No one? No, probably not. Um, I hope you aren't too sad uh, about it all. I, I hope you weren't uh, emotional about it. I did meet someone some some years ago. I used to do a bit in Edinburgh show about a man uh, I met in Billingsgate Market and I had to be interview him about um, the Euros some years ago. And it was uh, and he was in absolute tears because England hadn't qualified. And I really thought, oh wow, uh, this is all of your life. I'm ignorant about this. So I hope you're not that sad. I hope you're not crying with fish down your apron. Um, and I hope you haven't had any racist fire flares out of their bum near you either, uh, which is uh, it looked absolutely terrifying in town yesterday. We stayed as far away from it as possible um incidentally firing uh, flares out your bum is something that brilliant clown comedian chris lynham um he was part of malcolm hardy's greatest show on legs back in the day uh he always ended his sets by putting a flare in his bum and firing it off uh he was a proper that he's an incredible clown if you ever get a chance to see him um i have actually seen him do that up far too close uh, and it is both impressive and really horrifying you never forget it i've also heard the story from him about when it exploded and he had to go to a and e and i never ever want to hear that ever again um, so I'm just saying that we could all think that, that England fan was an idiot thug but it could also be that he's a really practised clown trying to recruit other fans into unsuspecting culture and um, no it's not that is it it's not that it was definitely he was an idiot thug but sometimes I just like to pretend that people are better than they are it's nice isn't it nice to do that Anyway, uh, I'll keep this brief as I am doing the show late today um, as I have been teaching primary school kids stand-up all morning which was immensely fun and I have had some really great insights into how irritating many 10-year-olds find it when they're grown up, shout their name for dinner and then they come down and dinner isn't ready. Trust me, they are li- they are livid about that shit. That is like big issue, top big issue. If there was like an Ipsos Mori or a YouGov uh, for 10-year-olds about big issues that they care about, that is it. That is it. being shouted for dinner, come down, dinner isn't ready. What the fuck? That is... Ugh. Anyway, 10-year-olds livid about it. So, um, big time thanks this week to Ben and Melissa for joining the Patreon of No Extra Benefits. None. Absolutely no extra benefits, apart from the message that I'll send you to say thanks, which you will get, because I'm not ungrateful. No, no, not ungrateful. Um, but thank you. You're basically helping me do this show. You're helping me afford to do this, uh, which is lovely. And if you fancy helping me afford to do this with a quid or 400, um, then you can join the Patreon.com forward slash Bro and enjoy knowing that I will very, very rarely send you any extra content, because 
because that is just rewarding people who have money and can afford this show. And I want to let people have this show for free because otherwise it feels at odds about the whole ethos of this podcast. And that is what I say to cover up the fact that I'm lazy and I can't be bothered to make more things. Um, you can also do the Kofi and Acast supporter site too, but I'm trying to get all guns for the Patreon site right now uh, to sort of have you all in one place uh, and then I can control you. Sorry, I mean, then uh, if I do extra content, I won't have to work out how to add it to two sites. Oh, my difficult life. Um, thank you also to Wocket One, which is a wonderful name, for the very lovely Apple Podcast review and tar to all of you who have given the pod a plug on your socials in the past week as well. You're all bloody lovely. So, um some very good news uh, in the admin bit this week uh, the El Gavez family who I mentioned last week um, had been detained at Yarlswood because the Home Office lost their fucking papers um, they've been released and they're now back uh, with the family of listeners uh, to this show who are putting them up so hooray nice things do happen even if it is bloody awful that they had to go through that in the first place um, if there are any other awful breaches of human rights or even sort of just less awful ones uh, that I can help with by mentioning it here or sticking a link to a petition or podcast blurb anything like that then please do get in touch it is the very least I can do I mean it's actually the least on the scale of political activism it's like a small sign on the box that the scales came in so I'm always happy to help and next week is going to be the last podcast for at least a month, possibly more weeks than that. It might be sort of till end of August, early September. Um, I'm hoping there's going to be a guest on it. It's looking sketchy because, as you've all realised uh, by the amount of time that's happened in just the last couple of months, people have got lives again. God damn it. Not me, just all the other people. They've all got lives. Um, so it's harder to pin anyone down when they're all going, oh my God, I can see my friends again. Um, but I'm considering some changes for when this podcast returns after the break with maybe interviews not being every week now that it's trickier to arrange them and maybe just some shows at least two maybe even three times a month just being the comedy bit and being shorter um does that sound good great thanks i'm glad you agree no seriously uh, if you don't agree or you have some fantastic other suggestion like why not do it all in mime or give up then you know get in touch on this week's show, um, I've got a guest that I have been wanting to interview for ages, uh, defence writer and ex-soldier Joe Glenton about our war fetishising society. And in the middle, there is a wee bit about some bills that you might have missed. Um, that's political ones. It's not like gas ones. I'm not just going to let you know that your car tax is overdue or something. But it might be. Best to check in case. You know, don't um, don't let that go by and get in trouble. Just, just check. Even if you don't have a car, just check. <laughs> We all know what war is good for, thanks to Edwin Starr and living through whichever pointless ideological violent outburst that applies to your decade. But despite it clearly not being a good thing, British culture is still intent on comparing everything to it or treating it as one. There's the culture war, which isn't a war because only one side are fighting it and culture was killed off by Covid anyway. Uh, there's the pandemic, which so far has seen people adopt the Blitz spirit because apparently in the Blitz they bought all the toilet roll and pasta. And according to Johnson, lockdown was like being in captivity in a POW camp if, you know, they had Netflix. Then all the Brexit talk was full of World War II analogies. There's the war on poverty, the war on drugs, which won't work as all the casualties are having a great time. There's the war on terror, which will never end until Halloween is cancelled. And war on G, who hasn't made any new tunes in years. Everyone has to wear a bigger and bigger poppy for Remembrance Day every year to distract from the reality of many people being sent to their death. And of course, every politician supports the troops and the veterans by waving lots of flags and encouraging everyone to donate to charities that support them because Westminster can't be bothered. Is that actually what veterans want, though? Or would a better thanks for serving in the army be measures to curb poverty, proper mental health care for PTSD concerns and employment opportunities for young people once they leave? Of course, I'm being silly. Who needs that? Well, look, a flag again. It's really big this time. Wavy, wavy. Considering the war rhetoric we're surrounded by, exactly how does it translate to actually looking after those who've been on the front line? What exactly is in the Armed Forces Bill? And how exactly would you fight culture anyway if you aren't willing to have a dance-off? 
This week, I spoke to defence writer Joe Glinton. Joe was a British soldier for six years serving in Afghanistan, a war that British troops are only now being pulled out from 20 years later. Um, before, he bravely and admirably refused to serve a second term, having spent five months in military prison for going AWOL. Since then, he's been a powerful anti-war activist and written extensively about the realities of our military system and the treatment of veterans with his new book, Veteranhood, Rage and Hope in a British Ex-Military Life, that will be coming out in November. I've been wanting to get Joe on this podcast for a while and it was really great to be able to ask him all about just who politicians are doing their pro-veteran soundbites for, what support veterans actually need and just what we should be concerned about in the Armed Forces Bill. I hope you enjoy. Here is Joe. Hi, Joe. Um, Thanks tons for being on the show. Let's start right at the top, right? I think uh, from from my point of view of the public, uh, there's always loads of political rhetoric about how we're so proud of our veterans and we really support our veterans. We just had that with, with Keir Starmer in the last week uh, with all the, the nuke test uh, veterans. Um, and I, I just thought right, right off the top, are any parties or have any parties actually proposed anything that would help those who served in the military? And, and do you feel that this sort of over-the-top patriotism is actually the way to reach veterans or is it just appeasing Tory voters? It's it's a funny one, isn't it? I think actually that there was a there was a party that did did um put forward some quite good concrete proposals um in the manifesto in 2019 and that was that was Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. I think a lot of people, even people who wouldn't actually be Jezza fans, and that's fair enough. Um, looked at it and thought it was quite good. There was a load of stuff about there was going to be like um not quite a union but like a federation they wouldn't have the right to strike for, for service personnel, but they would be able to organise um, and a bunch of other proposals about mental health and stuff, which I thought were quite good. Um, in terms of the parties generally, like now, um, no, not really. It's, it's much of a muchness. There's a lot of um, um, kind of vague stuff about mental health, resettlement. A lot of the parties are quite similar um, on this on this stuff. Um yeah, I think I, I suspect things have probably improved in terms of like mental health because that's the big one everyone talks about, isn't it? Like as if as, as if only veterans get PTSD, uh, only soldiers get PTSD. Um, but it's probably improved since Iraq and Afghanistan, I suspect. But as far as like good concrete shit for vets and soldiers and sailors and airmen, um, it's it's all quite vague and, and and not particularly good. I suppose the Tories started um a veterans office not quite a government department of veterans office but i've i've come to see that and i think that's been proven in the last couple of months it was basically a kind of vehicle for johnny mercer to talk about himself um, and now it's now johnny mercer has been given the boot or he says he left you know whatever um and he's been replaced by leo doherty another ex-army officer um and i suppose i mean time will tell how much good that does most of its time and most of Johnny Mercer's time was spent trying to trying to stop people getting prosecuted for war crimes, um, as far as I could understand it. And but I'm sure there was some good work done. So yeah, I, I don't think any of the major parties are really at this moment offering anything massive. To be honest, um, it's all like little reforms around the edges, if you know what I mean. Sure. I mean, it's, it's probably a very silly question. We'll get sort of hopefully more sensible questions in a minute. But, you know, is the whole kind of flag waving and, rah, you know, save the statues, is that actually what, is that how you appeal to veterans? I mean, is there any, is there any sort of veterans no. that are like, do you know what? That's the, we don't want mental health care. We need bigger no. flags. Is that, a, I, I realise I'm asking this to quit asking me no, but it, yeah, yeah. it doesn't seem like a, I mean, who who is that for? It's, it's a really good question. And you asked, 
um, you send that question to me the other the other week, and I really thought about. It. I'm probably going to write something on it because I think it's a really interesting one. Like, who are MPs addressing when they say, "I love the troops," or they say, "My granddad's cousins, Jack Russell, was there at D-Day," and they make these these massive kind of I call it veteran signalling these big statements about how much they love the military. I suspect it's not. They're not trying to win over uh, military, but a lot of military people, by the nature of the job, are actually fairly politically indifferent. Some are on the left, some are on the right, some are in the centre, but a lot of people don't really don't really care. I I suspect, and it's particularly the Labour Party is bad for this recently and in the pre-Corbyn stage. Um, uh, and I think it's because the Tories kind of are already connected to the military. They already have, they are the party of defence. And they say that and to, to some degree it's true. There are lots of ex-military officers in the Parliament, Parliamentary Conservative Party, um, lots of ex-military members of the Conservative Party. So it always seems to me Labour who really strain and really like overdo it and when they do their veteran signalling. And my suspicion is that it's really about trying to win win over voters, I, I suspect. And just and also just positioning that it's probably also about appealing to the defence industry to some degree, to say, look, Labour is a safe bet. Um, uh, but I, that, that, I, I write about it a lot in the book. There's an interesting, um, like in this country, we don't really go in. We don't really veteran worship. We do veteran worship. We don't, the tone is very different to how it is in the States. And I think like screaming at the sight of camouflage in the airport lounge is very much an American thing. And it's not a British thing. I think that the British kind of imaginary is of the stiff upper lip on the Somme, you know, the chaps doing their duty. And it doesn't, and some of, some of that is true. I think that is probably how most military people imagine themselves rather than the kind of, oh my God, thank you for your service kind of shit you get in America. And so it doesn't really work here. And I think the reason it's so jarring um, and the reason it's appeared, this kind of American mode of veteran worship is because back in the kind of, we're talking about 2008, 2009, Gordon Brown, of all people, realised or, or felt that there was a distance between society and the military um, because lots of people were against Iraq and Afghanistan. And they, the, the way they reacted to that was to try and repopularize the military and try and say, if you criticize the wars, you disrespect the troops. So there's a lot going on there. There's a series of documents and reports they published, the recognition of our armed forces in society, which Brown funded. And part of what happened in that report, one of the recommendations was basically to like transplant this American model of bullshit veteran worship onto Britain. And that's one of the reasons I think why it looks so weird and it's so jarring because we don't really think about our military in the way that perhaps the Americans do. There's no like shrill flag waving, shrieking in the way that there is in, in the States. Um, it's a slightly more subtle thing here. Um, and so it leads to this weird thing where all of a sudden Britain has adopted the, the American model of soldier worship. To my mind, that, that's one of the reasons why it's so jarring. But fundamentally, to answer your question, I think it, for Labour particularly, it's about appealing to Tory voters. Um, and I, I suspect a lot of it also goes completely over the head of people in the military um, of, all, of all ranks. They're completely indifferent um, to, uh, to a lot of it, I suspect. It's, it always seems to me that, that we sort of uh, do a lot of the war glorifying. There's always a big remembrance day and always big, hey, remember those that died. And we also do the give money to charities that uh, support troops, but never will actually 
give money to people who fought in a war. Like, there's never any support that comes from the government. It's always donate money to poppy sellers, remember those that died, but we're not actually going to do anything ourselves. And I, I wonder, you know, what is actually needed for veterans and their families? Obviously, as, I know we've got the, the specific um, sort of nuke test uh, veterans cases come up recently, but but in general, um, as well as them, in general, what what do veterans need? Is it uh, are we seeing a lot of veterans in poverty? What are the kind of issues that people who have served are now facing? Yeah, I mean, I, I always try and obviously there there are specific things like particular so veterans who are in combat roles, particularly those who join very young, and you can join very young in this country. Um, who end up in the combat arms, the infantry, and so on? I have partic- they're particularly vulnerable. Like all the bad metrics, all the bad things: alcoholism, domestic abuse, prison sentences, homelessness. And so there is a particular cohort who are particularly prone to all the bad stuff. More generally speaking, I think most of the people in the military are in the ranks. Most of them are working class people. When they leave, their problems are working class problems. The NHS the welfare state, um, all the shit that was in that manifesto. I don't want to sound like I'm a massive Labour Corbyn fanboy because I was always like a critical, a critic. I was critical involved in it, but critically. A lot of that basic stuff, we just talk about what you can do in a, in society as it is. A lot of that stuff would tick the boxes. Uh, they're mostly working class people. I don't care about officers. I don't care about Rupert and Tarquin and Ptolemy. I don't give a shit about you. Uh, the, the blokes and the women, the guys and the girls in the military, they're Problems are working class problems, and so those those and that's part, kind of why the people, the guys who came back from World War Two, um, voted for the government, which would put that shit in place. Yeah, I mean it's now being stripped away by by Labour and Tory. I mean they're both big fans of privatisation. Um, so I think most of those problems could be resolved just with a, a proper, um, like a slightly fairer. We're not even talking anything radical. I'm talking about like. Soviet communism, like a slightly more equitable society, could probably and and most military people and veterans would be served serviced by that if it was if it was better generally in society. If the hospitals were better, if there was more GPs, if there was more nursing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it's not even anything radical. Um, um, there, there, there's there's other kind of specific stuff as well, but, but I think generally, um, you know, there, there's a tendency I think to kind of essentialize veterans. And imagine them as these, and could, we do it because we're told to do it. So imagine these, these special, magical fucking people. And actually, they just have the same issues as the rest of us, to be honest. I mean, it's not, there's, there's no rocket science involved. It's just properly funded services would be a huge step. And, and do you think, um, just I suppose the other end of that, sort of the people going into the army, is that, you know, is, is that, are we going to see an increase in that because there aren't enough jobs for young people because there aren't enough support for working class areas, for working class people? Are we going to see, you know, the, the army becoming a more popular method of getting an income and, and kind of having a job and, and something to do? Yeah, I think it varies. I think they had a bumper year last year. Lots of people joined. They always release their, their usually very cynical um, advertising campaigns in January to get the January blues. So that, that's literally, we... we as part of what, one of my jobs, we found a document which said this was in um, army recruiting in Glasgow. It's like get them in Glasgow, target the poor when they're sad, and get and wow. get them. Um, so yeah, I mean they had a big year last year, but I think army recruiting fluctuates um, depending on different things. Sometimes if there's a recession, um, it will increase. I think it probably went up in two thousand and eight. Um, 
but they've also found it, I think, at times very hard to recruit. Um, sometimes that's because of reputational stuff, because the army keeps having really grim racism and sexism and sexual violence scandals. Um, um, and obviously the army is smaller. When I joined, it was 120,000. And now it's down to it's less than 80,000. So there are a bunch of factors. But the army, I can tell you, the army do aggressively recruit. Um, they look at schools, poor schools. They look at working class communities, the poorer end of working class communities, and they aggressively recruit in those areas. They know they know what they want. They know who they're looking for. Um, and so there is there's there's that kind of um, the poverty draft, if you like, economic conscription. I mean, it's not as simple as that because obviously it's voluntary, but there's also the ideological stuff, which is what we talked about a little bit before. The, the way we think about the military in this cult, country is generally as a kind of force for good or whatever, and it's connected with ideas about masculinity, ideas about heroism and so on and so on. But, um, but definitely they, they aggressively target the poor. And it was ever thus, um, and it's still the same today. Is there, uh, I mean, because you're saying that obviously there's, there's something about this, you know, the idea of, as we mentioned earlier, that the army are forced for good and everything. We're, we're, you know, do you feel like we're seeing a kind of increase in the, the fetishizing of war? Just, I mean, everything, you know, it's war with the EU and it's just about, it's about trading policies or it's, you know, yeah, yeah, we're having yeah. a culture war. Everything's, everything's got war in there somewhere. Yeah. Everything's referred to as that the COVID was like the blitz and, you know, it's, it's endless war yeah. uh, rhetoric. And is that, you know, do you think that's kind of increasing the possibility of us entering more conflict, or at least sort of driving people more towards that as as being a I think it's positive about, thing? I think one way you can think about militarism, which is a, can be a really fucking nebulous term, one way you can think about it is kind of the permanent preparation for war. And you can look at some of that stuff, the way the military is constantly having to rebrand and adapt. And I don't like the military jumped on the Olympics when the security fell. They were eager to have a public presence really eager to be at football matches. They were rabid about being, being involved in COVID, absolutely desperate to be involved in the COVID stuff and have a public presence. So they're very good at kind of kind of marketing that. Um, the World War II thing is like a weird, we saw it with the Germany game a little bit, didn't we? Like all the sad cases, two World Cups and one World War or whatever, uh, the flag shaggers or whatever. Um, but I think it's also that, I think we're a country in decline We've just got to suck it up. This is it. Britain is not what it was. And what it was wasn't that good anyway, <clears throat> let's be frank. Um, and I think the one kind of kind of suit thing which remains in our in our kind of formation myth, the powerful moral, <clears throat> excuse me, mythology is World War II. And so politicians and public figures of low moral fibre, of, of low character, will constantly try and mine it like <clears throat> draw upon it, draw that kind of moral capital from world. And of course, the real narrative of World War II, all the world wars, any war is very complex and nuanced, and it's very hard to understand. But that is the good war in the in the public mind, probably. And they will try and draw upon it and endlessly cite it. And you'll notice the people who do this are, are generally people of a very low moral quality. Quality. It's the 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 David Camerons, the Gordon Browns, the Keir Starmers, the, and so on and so on. The obsessives and I think it's because it has this kind of moral quality which can be be extracted and you, the politicians can kind of smear themselves in it um and that's also why I mean because it, it's it's another strange thing there's a degree of conflation I think one of the whether it's a conscious tactic or not we generally also in this country tend to conflate like 
Lance Corporal Dickhead, me in Afghanistan, with like some guy who stormed the beach on D-Day, as if the British Army of then and now are fundamentally the same thing. I mean, most of the British Army's history, just to take the army without the other services, looks a lot more like Afghanistan than it does like D-Day. Little dirty colonial wars, Ireland, Afghanistan, the Middle East, Africa, the subcontinent. And most of his history looks like that. And, and it, 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 you must ask a question, why, why are we always framed as kind of somehow, as if there's some kind of mythical connecting tissue between us and World War II, when most of our history is basically um, pillaging and burning natives in various parts of the world. Um, so it, pro it probably tells a story and it's worth examining why that is, why yeah. everything is coloured. Say, it's always funny that we don't always refer Everything's to things coloured. as that's like when you know Baghdad was looted or whatever. You know, we don't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't we don't refer to bits as like as other more recent war conflicts. No, no, when we burned, you know, yeah. when, when we when we burned this and that city. Um, no, yeah, there's a reason that the World War Two, and it also it's partly true. Like World War Two does have it was a fight against fascism. It wasn't only that. There were obviously other factors as well, and so it's kind of easy to to frame it. As that uh, the truth, obviously the truth is much more complex. I would suggest, but I think that's a strong enough image in the public mind that it's something that can be drawn on, and everyone wants to kind of position themselves closely to it because it has this. It gives off this kind of moral vapor that they can ingest and look good. They think. Do you think we're because it definitely felt like I mean I remember going on all sort of the Iraq War marches and everything and. It felt like that that was a bit of a turning point for the whole country. Going, we don't want this anymore. And I know, obviously, you were you were in Afghanistan, but all the, the, those wars that followed, there seemed to be a period of time where the public felt, from sort of the outside view, like we don't want this anymore. Do you think it's just been too long since then? Do you think? Do you think we're, that's still the mindset, or do you think? Uh, as it, do you think it's been? I don't know. Now a decade, hasn't it? So, well, obviously not. Obviously, I know there's still years. things going on, but yeah. twenty years, right? Yeah. 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 Is that that we've just um, forgotten how shitty it all was? Or? Um, I don't know. I guess, I mean, those wars are very distant. They became very distant things. And the narratives which were coming back, I mean, one thing as a defence journalist, um, part of the reason I became a defence journalist when I got out of the army is because so much coverage of the military is absolutely fucking terrible. I'm not going to tell you. But it's, all, it's because it, it's almost like client journalism. A lot of like the big defence journalists at the big channels are required by the nature of their job to be quite cosy with the military. Um, and the military has been able, has, has tried to and been able to dominate very often the narratives around world, uh, around Iraq and Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. Um, and I think that it's not just the geographical distance, it's also that kind of distance from the truth, from the reality of what's going on in those countries. And I think for the, the latter part of those wars, um, that's dominated. Also, though, I mean, the, the official drawdowns were, I think, 2009 for Iraq and 2014 for Afghanistan, and they almost immediately vanished, vanished from the um, from the headlines um, and from the, the the news. You know, um, obviously, those wars are still going on in different ways, but and so yeah, I suppose the military and the, the establishment have been able to create a certain amount of distance. But that said, there were, that the resistance continued for a long time um, we saw at the height of Afghanistan when there was like a guy a couple of guys dying every week there was a lot of I mean I think that forced the pullout slowly over a long period of time the the clear obvious unpopularity of the wars um, forced Britain's hand and I suppose it shows it does have an effect but maybe not always in the ways we 
expected to. I mean, I was I was literally my mum was on the two thousand and three. Uh, the march, the big march. I was joining the army at the time, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I think there's a thing there that loads of people marched and it, it failed. And I think for a lot of people, a lot, of, particularly younger people, a lot of the guys I was at uni with, I was a little bit older, was saying, um, I remember being a school kid and walking out of school, and it was like their first formative political experience, and it just didn't work. Like the wars went ahead. So I think probably that shapes people's perceptions that early becoming politically conscious and then failing um, probably stung a lot of people. It probably made a, a lot of people very cynical and understandably so. I mean, I'm not, not going to... Massively, gonna, yeah. I'm sure it that. was a big key to just causing so much political apathy. I mean, I felt, I was I was a student at the time and just mm. felt like, oh, they don't care. They're not listening to us. What's the point? You know, it just felt there's millions yeah. of people on the streets and you're still not giving a shit. Like that makes a massive... <laughs> yeah difference to, to how much effort you put in for it from then on and I, I was going to say that you know I mean I think one of the one of the amazing things that you've been doing is you've you've spoken out ever since I mean you, you know you, you obviously uh refused to go back which is incredible but you've spoken out ever since uh you left the army and, and you've been talking about it. but we, there's not many voices like yours I mean maybe there are but we don't get to hear them are there a lot more people that want to speak out but like you say it's just that we don't we don't hear them. Yeah, it's I not think, given the coverage because that wouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that model, that model, the model of the dissenting veteran, and there's a long, proud history of veterans unionising themselves, going on strike, uh, uh, military people, uh, union, uh, going on strike and so on, and a long history of veterans being involved in all kinds of radical stuff. But no, it doesn't really fit the, 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 the kind of body politic in Britain, but it is, and I've tried to write about it. I've tried to talk about this long, this long history of dissent and rebellion and mutiny um, a little bit because that's also part of the military's composition. I mean, it's it's not just all one thing. And I wanted to try and try and kind of introduce that 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 even today, like not all veterans are Tories or fascists. There's a sense that if you're a veteran, you're going to be a Tory um, or a fascist, and it's just that there are loads and loads of left wing veterans who are involved in all like. From Scottish independence, the Cormanism stuff, renters' unions, trade unions. As I've come across so many people who are ex-military um, who are involved in this stuff, and it's um, part of the the idea with the book is to try and go. Actually, look, we should problematize this idea that everybody um, who's worn a uniform is some kind of fucking Tommy Robinson or Jordan Peterson fanboy. It's just not. It's just not how it is. The military is a politically diverse organization, and it's Increasingly, I think it's a contested political space, as is the veterans community um, as well. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we'll be back with Joe in a minute. But first, we will pay for terrible bills because MPs vote for terrible bills. Many people they will kill. Tories maybe just chill. Um, I won't do that again. Yes, loads of bills have been and are being rushed through Parliament like a meal of refried beans through your bowels the day after. And often in content as well as temperament. Um, here this week is a super speedy rundown of three big uns like Christopher that you may have missed but they definitely won't miss you as you suddenly find you're being arrested for helping someone escape a war or for protesting because your passport isn't enough ID to let you vote as it doesn't have a stamp saying you've donated to the Conservative Party on it. And it's okay because Richard Branson will be dictating your healthcare from his new space palace where he somehow pays reverse tax and gets given money by the moon. Probably. The policing bill was passed with just two days of debate about it last week, despite being a 300-page document. But hey, having seasoned debate with a majority Conservative government about a bill that is entirely detrimental to democratic and human rights is the same as thinking it's worth persuading a zombie through reasoned argument about your basic rights to keep your own brain and not have them chomp on it. There are bits of the policing bill that are good, including longer sentences for domestic abuse, of which cases have risen dramatically during lockdown. There's also a ton of legislation that could see you arrested because your protest is just too damn loud. How loud is too loud? Well, I mean, it's whatever is deemed annoying. So if you're whispering but some numpty feels it's rattling their bum into unclenching and feels threatened, then the coppers could get you. It is strange that the government have decided the criminal types they need to clamp down on alongside domestic abusers are the people who say, what do we want? When do we want it? Into a loud hailer. I mean, I don't think they're very similar things, but then this is a government who can't take criticism. And I often wonder if, as a child, Pretty Patel was told by a teacher that her colouring in wasn't good enough and she then tried to have them thrown in a cell. Amnesty International have called this bill a calculated attack on our bedrock basic rights. That's as in founding ones, not ones that were in the Flintstones. The quote goes on to say that you'd expect to see the new policing powers in the pages of a novel about future dystopian Britain. I disagree, but only really about the future bits. It'd definitely be set in the present day. It is odd that Britain has come to the aid of and offered asylum to people in Hong Kong because of the oppression of protesters by authorities, but will now be welcoming them to Britain where it will be very much the same. Maybe the government is going out of their way to make Hong Kong expats feel at home. I don't really know. It is a scary bill and it will now go to the Lords where they could make changes before it becomes law, but chances are high it will go through as it is and we're all going to have to work out how to do protests in mine. Let's see police try and remove me with ease from this imaginary hovering static briefcase I've handcuffed myself to. You just bloody try. The second bill worth knowing about is the elections bill, which is a bit about bringing in voter ID, which will very quickly stop a whole bunch of people from being able to vote. And it will also mean even more people will laugh at your shitty passport photo than just the guys in the airport. At least when they laugh, you can escape to an entirely different country to get over it. Um, so voter ID is obviously very worrying, but even more concerning in the elections bill uh, than the undemocratic bits are the really undemocratic bits that will stop the Electoral Commission from being able to do, well, anything, and basically allows ministers to change the terms of what campaigning means, which could allow for more foreign interference in our elections and dark money donations that could then influence policies. On the plus side, it could mean that if we all send loads and loads and millions of letters to more democratic countries asking for desperate help, I reckon we could get them to spend millions on helping the monster-raving loonies win for once, and it might finally change the game. 
The laws will also put limits on unions, groups, charities and individuals deemed to be anything considered to be for intended for a common purpose, which would basically block them out of the election process and could mess up things for, well, basically anyone but the Tories, as they could make processes illegal that opposition parties need for organising, like, I know, booking a meeting room. Again, the only good thing is it will make work more fun for many of you if you can get anyone arrested who books a meeting room during the election campaign. I mean, I don't think it will work like that, but hey, we've got to find some joy in this misery, so you may as well try and get your boss thrown in jail. So that's nearly all political opposition quashed in two bills. That's the policing bill that's had its third reading going to the Lords, uh, the elections bill that was announced last week, and thirdly also announced was the Nationality and Borders bill, which says it cracks down on human traffickers, but actually just changes the terms so that anyone claiming asylum can now be criminalised, which breaks the Geneva Convention. The sort of thing that might cause other countries to be concerned, and then maybe, hopefully, they'll invade us in order to restore democracy, and Pretty Patel would have to flee in a boat. That would be karma at its very best. What the bill does in many places is add extra complexity and, well, horrible shittiness to bits of the already terrible, inadequate and often inhumane asylum system. But that is how conservatives work, isn't it? By taking something terrible and then somehow making it so much worse, you start to miss all the times when it was just shitty. Three bills all work together to make one Decepticon combiner. Sorry, I mean a shitty trilogy up there with the Star Wars prequels, which equally attack human rights and well-being. So what can we do about it? Well... Soon, we won't be able to protest unless it's in stealth mode, so it's right to your MP time. Sign all the petitions you can, community organise all that shit, and also get practising to hold placards while dressed as a ninja and climbing a lamppost. Or I guess we could all just dress up in football shirts and make as much noise as possible and then trash things, and chances are we'll get the Home Secretary cheering alongside us while the police go and get lunch. And now, back to Joe. Yeah, so my, my very uh, limited experience of meeting... Well, actually, I say that. meet a lot when doing gigs and there's sort of veterans in the audience and often really lovely people. And it's normally the sort of, without generalising too much, often the higher-up ones who didn't go to war who are really, <laughs> really... Uh, you know, who've ordered yeah, yeah. things, uh, who, who are a lot more difficult to deal with, uh, I find, uh, just yeah. in audience participation times. Um, you, you mentioned sort of that, uh, that a lot of veterans are left wing and are you know or, or politically indifferent but then also we have seen that there are quite a lot of veterans on the far right or when we've seen in this whole culture war statue defending there's been a lot of veterans that have stepped up to uh, defend statues of often quite dubious people um is is that also a, a concern how big uh or how many veterans are kind of involved in 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 far right or extremist politics yeah definitely um a lot of people i think some people always have ended up on the far right there's a lot of crossover the military is like a, a hyper-conservative institution, obviously, um, and it kind of glorifies its violent imperial past. It's about power and submission and so love. I think the far right, certainly, I interview a couple of people who are ex-far right in my book, ex-far right military fans. Uh, the far right certainly targets, it looks for these guys who come out and says you can continue to be this kind of hero, hero in your mind by joining us and that the values sit quite well together um i think so there is a lot of that and you know know, we saw it at the the big last year the big riot in july the statue defender riot there's loads of ex-military guys in berets normally they they come in civilian clothes and berets it's kind of an unofficial uniform um and you saw people standing around you know churchill um and uh and all the, the cenotaph and all these these things my, I think I've tried to. I tried to look at it in a global perspective, though. Um, um, when you look at Western professional armies, particularly the ones which were involved in Iraq and Afghanistan to some degree, and some who weren't, um, you increasingly see the the kind of stab in the back myth 
the we've been betrayed by effete liberal politician stuff. And there's a long history of that after Vietnam, after the First World War, after the Second World War, of veterans coming back and kind of falling into these narratives. We have it now and we have it now. And so you'll see in the States, um, the Capitol Hill riot full of veterans. And I think one in five of the people who were being tried, um, this was a couple of months ago, were veterans. There was a lot of veterans there. Um, you see it in, in France, there's a bunch of serving and ex-generals and military personnel have got into a big row with the state by saying we need to stop the Muslims coming in. And so, you know, it's, it's this, this kind of Islamophobic rhetoric. Um, you see it in Spain, obviously, the military there is deeply connected to Francoism. Um, uh, Germany, they dug up a whole neo-Nazi network. Um, that was last year as well, in the police and special forces, in the military special forces. Um, just the other week, there was a rogue far-right soldier who went went on the run in Belgium with a load of guns. And you see that you kind of see a lot of this. And there's, it's clear that, I mean, we can argue about the causes, but it, it's clear that in Western professional armies in particular, there is a problem. And part of it, I suspect, is that we've elevated these institutions to such, such a scale um, and they've become so culturally powerful. There are dangers in doing that when they're, when it's an institution which is basically concerned with violence, with killing people and destroying things. I mean, that is fundamentally what the military is for. And when you elevate institutions like that, it can be really dangerous. Um, and we, uh, we, you can look back to after the Second World War, after the First World War, the Fry Corps, uh, after the Second World War, um, the British Union of Fascists, the, the follow-on from the British Union, a fascist, which was called, it was Mosley again, but it was the um, ex-servicemen's and women's, obviously it was attached to the military organisation. You will always find people who are messed up, like they're often messed, badly messed up by their experiences. They're prone to conspiracism and they're deeply traumatised. And so the, we, we're, we're going to have that, that element appears again and again and again. And it certainly seems to be the case that something like that is happening now. Um, it's hard to say how dangerous it is. I don't think veterans have started killing people here yet, but certainly people died in Capitol. And the, um, the people who tried to do the Capitol raid were intent on violence, and they did kill people. Um, they killed people there. Um, and so it's something just to be very conscious of, that there is this crossover between the far right and the military, and we, we should try and grapple with the reasons why. But one of the problems of elevating the military, making it unquestionable, is it's sometimes very hard to ask those questions because you'll be accused of disrespecting the troops and all this shit. But it's, it's real and serious, like lots of soldiers involved in far-right politics, and that's that's dangerous. And does that come back to as well, do you think that, you know, a way that would prevent people going to that is 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 basically the care the, the care that happens afterwards, the care that happens after... It'd be a big factor. You know, being, being in the army, if, if there is that kind of mental health support, if there is that... Um, I've probably got the term wrong, is it... Is it not suppression, you know, the, the, the period you have when you come out that's decompression, been to... yeah, yeah, yeah. Decompression, see, sorry, yes, I think the problem is, but... it's exactly right, you're exactly right. That, that would that would help. I think there's there's deeper questions about military culture, like a lot of the problems the mental health stuff veterans face. Um, is not necessarily about what happened on operational tour, it's not about oh my god, Billy, Billy got hit, and the kind of Hollywood cliche shit. It's actually military culture, military culture itself is violent and hyper conservative, and it 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 gets inside your head. And there are many aspects to it. I mean, one of them is civilian hatred. Like the, the people we hate the most, we're taught to hate the most in the military, are not like uh, the Arabs, the Irish, the Afghans, the Russians. It's civilians. We're our own civilians. Our own, not, not civilians in different countries, our own civilians. 
are the absolute with the people, the exact people who come out on Remembrance Day and wave flags and go, oh, we love the troops. Like in the army, we fucking hated you. <laughs> we hate these people because they're seen as effeminate and soft and not tough and not organized and they need us to look after them. Um, and that that kind of stuff, obviously, when it carries back into civilian life, can have really dangerous impacts. The, the military mindset is a, like, a profoundly toxic thing in many ways. And so it's not necessarily about what you did on operations. It's about just being in the military, just the, the experience of training and immersion in, mil, in the military culture um, can really mess with people. Oh, that's terrifying. That explains because I went to uni in uh, Kent in Canterbury, and there's a big barracks there, and quite regularly students were beaten up by uh, oh, yeah, yeah. squaddies on 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 a, normally on a Thursday night at Churchill's Club. That's normally yeah. there'd always the be same, some same in Colchester. Into... We got we got banned from the Colchester University campus when I was posting Colchester because the lads went down and got fighting and beat up a load of students, and it became a regular a regular thing. And it's it's yeah, civilian hatred. It's it's kind of a, it's a, it's like a wow. core part of the military of military identity. Is is what we are not. We are not civilians. We're better, and we're more, and we're tougher, and we're harder, and we we need to prove it all the time. Isn't that? I just find that amazing. That it's also defend the country, but also beat them up on yeah. in the weekdays. Defend them on the weekend. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. A, an that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Wow. I wanted to ask sort of very, you know, a bit more detailed stuff. We've got the, the armed forces bill uh, that's coming back uh, into Parliament. And I, I wanted to ask what we need to be. Do we need to be concerned about it? Is it a worrying bill? I, I don't know anything about it. I don't really understand what the armed forces covenant is. Um, what yeah, yeah, yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. Should we be worried about it? Or is it a good, is any of it good? Yes. <laughs> So the Armed Forces Bill is like, um, it rotates every two years. I think it's every two years or four years it comes, but I think it's four years. It's like an overarching bill which which um, covers loads of stuff. It covers tons of different things like military law and some welfare stuff. Um, and it kind of come back, it's re-voted on every four years and it contains all kinds of diverse topics and it's constantly trying to like adjust things. Um, there are, there's stuff... Um, which we should pay attention to. There's been, um, this is happening in the States as well. So there's a big problem with sexual violence in the military, sexual harassment against women soldiers, particularly. Um, and so in the Armed Forces Bill this time, there was a discussion about, so, so commanding officers, the colonel, the head of a regiment, which is about 800 blokes, probably less than that, um, uh, could himself arbitrarily decide on things which in civilian life would be very serious offences. So a, a commanding officer could decide on rape, on rape case, and he could assign, he was like his own judge, which is really obviously, and obviously the outcomes of that were fucking awful for female service people who had been affected by that kind of thing. Um, so that that's the debate, definitely to keep an eye on. And there was a, um, a brief, some fiery exchanges about it in Parliament. I mean, the last one, which was only a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it's always worth keeping an eye on on what's going on there. The Armed Forces Covenant is is a, stra a strange, complex, and nebulous thing. It's um, it's basically um, it's supposed to be a kind of agreement that you, when you join up, you give up certain things, your right to protest and so on, and then you'll be treated fairly. Um, in response. Obviously, it doesn't really work like that. 
but um, but then caught up within the idea of the armed covenant. It's basically all kinds of things about the obligation of the state and the population to the military and vice versa. Um, so it's about that relationship fundamentally. Um, but increasingly, it's, it's a strange thing because the armed forces covenant is really difficult to disagree with. It's very cleverly framed. Um, it's like who could disagree with that? That service people should be should be treated better, um, and so on. Um, and so, basically, you know, people on the left, the, the Corbyn crowd, supported it, and Tories supported it. Um, and it's quite because it's quite vaguely worded. It's, it just means like how the how to make sure soldiers don't suffer disadvantage because of their service and things like that. So it's actually quite difficult to pin down. But in the longer term, it's 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 basically, I, I, I think the concept is very old. It's about this relationship. It's also been kind of used politically. I remember in the uh, during the Afghan war, um, certain leading generals started to cite the covenant um, in terms of equipment. And that was never what the covenant was about. They were like, you'll probably remember, they were going, oh, we haven't got enough Chinooks. And it's going to cost people's lives and so on. And this is a breach of the covenant. It was General Dannett, I believe, against Gordon Brown. But those two were having a row anyway at the time. Um, and uh, Brown pulled General Dannett in and said, you, you can't, you, you're not supposed to be political, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but basically Dannett and others since have kind of tried to use, and the Tories at the time, they used it in that successful campaign to get back into power in 2010. They kind of said the covenant had been broken, uh, but very often they referenced equipment which is not really what it was about it's about this relationship between the public the, the service person and the state is really what it is right right that's so that makes a lot was it so but, but this the armed forces bill is trying to sort of enforce it or make it stronger because i, I know it's been included in that but yeah I, the armed forces bill does, does concern the covenant as well and it concerns that that relationship too but it's basically like a bill that's renewed every four years that that concerns um you know, it's it's really, really broad, so it's kind of hard to pin down, but it's basically, in a way, it's kind of um, a more legislative, it's kind of a legislative expression of the covenant, I suppose, in a way, you could, you could talk about it in that way. Um, but yeah, it contains all kinds of stuff about like military laws, um, funding, and so on, and so on like that. Um, the, I think the problem is, because the unless you kind of defense is very specific yeah. and very weird and very byzantine <laughs> very arcane and it has lots of fucking jargon and abbreviations and i and sometimes i think they do this on purpose so people don't don't look at it um closely but yeah it's it's this massive complex thing and it's almost a sense when you look at armed forces shit it's like it's not it's not for you it's for us as magical wizardry <laughs> in parliament and the lords to discuss because it's just so impenetrable the language is impenetrable um, I should probably do do like a what does this bill mean and and uh, write it down because there's also there's a number of other bills like the overseas operation bill which is kind of the which is the one which has also gone through is Johnny Mer and you can tell it's Johnny Mercer's brainchild because it's like it's incredibly it's like it's been written by a six year old <laughs> in places um, and uh, so that was that was another bill and they, they also it's, they all shade into each other these various bills. They all cover some of the same territory. But basically, you can think of them as like they like to have loads of armed forces bills in Parliament because it gives them all an opportunity to stand up and say how much they love the fucking troops and how their great granddad drove a soldier to the boats to go to Normandy or whatever, whatever shit they come out with. 
Because that was the over, the overseas yeah. operations That's one was the one because it didn't go through, did or that that part of it didn't go through because it was oh it did. did it go it through? Did. But it yeah 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 it got amended, it. wasn't it? So Some they didn't. So because it wasn't it originally so that soldiers could basically get away with international crimes. That was the original part. Of I mean, it. in a sense, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically what it was. I mean, they they obviously they were they were different. They did it quite slyly. It was like after if a case hasn't been reported within five years, then the and then it's reported, there will be a presumption against. But basically, I, I've always tried to understand it as the War Crimes Immunity right. Bill. That's <laughs> basically so what it is. Yeah. exactly yeah. what you've said. Yeah, and also, also it stitches up troops um, because a lot, there was an interesting figure. So for every one case of an Iraqi claiming to have been abused by British troops, there were 25 cases of British troops suing the MOD <laughs> themselves for negligence, for equipment failure, for injury. So one in 25. And that would also, that five-year limit would also have covered that so it would have stitched up our own people to stop them getting compensation rightfully for um for uh equipment failure and fucking the usual stuff that generals and politicians and arms come companies get up to when they stitch up the blokes um for example it probably would have i suppose i mean maybe the i don't know how it would have affected the nuclear test veterans who are a very specific cohort of veterans but clearly that was more than five years ago for example if it wasn't already in the courts, um, perhaps that, that would just be ruled out. I mean, you can imagine, like, you know, 10 years down the line, there'll be some other scandal. We were injected with something. We were exposed to something. And there'll be another health scare in the veterans community. And it will be the case of, no, we can't. We, we're not interested. Um, we're not going to pursue that because it's over five years and so on and so on. Um, so there's all these different aspects to it. But I can say it was bad. And it was badly written. And it got... It, it's the... It's the thing where it got panned by basically everybody panned it. Everybody panned the oob was ripped to pieces. It was really, really bad. I remember watching Johnny Mercer sitting in front of one of the committees, just snarling and sneering and being petulant like a posh boy that he is, um, and just getting ripped to pieces on the details of this bill. The problem is there's a big Tory majority. So it's like the, the, the you know mathematical reality versus the unmitigated crapness and evil of the oob um yeah yeah but it did it did have some i thought it had some amendments in it didn't it that meant that when it went through it there were some yeah there were a couple yeah there was some about sexual violence i think there's some about because there there was a weird because it it, it, different offenses were covered differently so there was i think there was a potential someone spotted the potential for a case where someone could be because rape was treated differently to murder in war, so that someone could be could rape and kill someone, and they'd be done for the rape and not the murder or something like that. And obviously, the U- the, U- the UK government, William Hague and Angelina Jolie, launched a massive sexual violence in war campaign. So it actually came up in the debates. It's like, is this the case? Is this weird quirk of the bill the case? Because we don't want to make Angelina Jolie angry. It was actually spoken about in those terms in one of the committees. It was bizarre, absolutely like bizarre carry on shit um but yes yeah, so i think there was an amendment if i remember correctly there was an amendment about yeah. that so it's well. like we need to get angie and jolie um, campaigning about more stuff if that's the effect she could have I, who knew yeah, yeah, she yeah. was the, the yeah. true opposition that's it yeah it was weird. it was her i remember her and william Hague appearing on platforms and it was like How the strange you know this tedious oh i like i like <laughs> when, he's, when he's leader i like i'm a lad i go to pub you know, a proper, proper, you know, down to earth Yorkshireman like William Hague. 
and then Angelina Jolie. Just it's really strange. Really bizarre. Really bizarre. Wow. Well, thanks for that. Though it's it's like you said. I find a lot of um, <coughs> particularly struggle with defense stuff because as it just it goes over my head and it because i have no personal experience i just don't understand what a lot of it means um so no it's just really useful to know sort of have an overview of if any if, if any of it's remotely positive or not <laughs> basically which uh we've sort of summed up slightly less very slightly <coughs> less negative than we thought but still overall shit good um brilliant well thanks joe i really appreciate you coming on and and I, uh, the last question which is really that um apart from yourself and obviously uh your upcoming book and uh forces watch too which other i mean as we said defense is really hard to get your head around so i, I wondered what other writers podcasts websites what would you recommend for and i suppose i should really pinpoint this as, as non-right wing kind of uh defense info yeah. because that's what i find really hard when looking up stuff you know what's the what's the kind of real narrative or the real information that we should be looking at yeah you're, you're exactly right you have to kind of go outside mainstream defense journalists do weird stories about generals being lost in field and like bake-off style competitions between special forces commanders those are real stories that mainstream defense journalists do if you want really good really good defense journalism uh and security and intelligence and that stuff declassified um declassified uk is really good so that's matt kennard um, Mark Curtis and Phil Miller, really, really serious reporters who do loads. And they've got a story out today about UK forces in secretly in Yemen. So declassified UK. It's hosted on a South African site called the Daily Maverick. If you look for declassified UK, that you'll get the, literally the best. The best. I mean, they're so good. They've been blacklisted and banned several times and had to fight back by the MOD um, because they're really good at what they do. And they, they terrify um, the British government. Um, they're really good. I write for the, I do defense stuff for the Canary. Um, if you want veteran stuff, there's a really good left wing veterans podcast called Left Flank Vets. That's American, but I'm mates with those guys and they do some, there's a lot of crossover culturally between US and UK. It's same but different. Um, and so, um, so they do really good discussions. They actually started on Twitch because they noticed the military were pretending to be teenagers and trying to recruit gamers on Twitch. So they were like, fuck this. And they joined Twitch and they actually became a quite successful live stream kind of podcast thing that they do every week. Um, so left flank veterans, they do, they're really funny as well. They do great stuff. But if you want like hard, hard facts about military defense, MI5, NI6, any of the, the arms trade, one of the best places to go is definitely declassified UK. As I've said, uh, I've been meaning to get Joe on this show for ages, so it was great to be able to chat with him. Thank you tons for that. Um, Joe's book, Veteranhood, Rage and Hope in Ex-Military Life, will be out in November, but you can pre-order it now from all book retailing spaces, virtual and real. Um, in the meantime, you can grab his first book from 2013, Soldier Box, Why I Won't Return to the War on Terror, and you can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe J. Glinton and find a lot of his articles on many sites too. Uh, you can also find Forces Watch at forceswatch.net, on Twitter at Forces Watch, and their podcast is called Warrior Nation. After next week, the show is on a wee break, but don't let that dissuade you from endlessly getting in touch with your recommendations for guests to a point where it's almost annoying, but not quite. And of course, you can do that at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could write it on a flare, put it up your bum, set... Oh, it's probably... No, don't. Don't do that. It's just... Please just email me. Probably just best to email me. <laughs> 
And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Uh, next week is the last episode before a summer break. And by that, I mean probably about two weeks. Uh, and then I'll probably have to do a podcast. It's all about lockdown four, won't I? Sorry, optimism. Optimism, I mean. It'll be back next week, whatever happens, though. Uh, unless a goblin materialises into my room and steals my microphone just as so I'm about to record. Hopefully that won't happen. See, there's optimism. So, goblin dependent, I'll be in your ears uh, then. But until that time, why not recommend this podcast to anyone you think might like it? Give it a review. Even join the Patreon and show how much you like it by donating a small amount of money that I could use for bills, condiments, or just try and balance it on a lemon on a bucket of water. I still, I've never really known why people do that. Big yeah, graciouses to uh, Acas, my brother, last skeptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Saji Jared has to be tackled to the ground by police after lobbing a cat into the Thames and setting fire to a child's bike while shouting, "If not now, then when?" Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Keep Football Out of Politics, a new campaign to ensure that ministers never mention football in their politics ever again and just stick to what they're good at, lying and failed promises. No more pretending what your favourite team is, no more wearing a suit jacket over your team shirt, no more complaining that badges have moved the goalposts. Let politics be the game of politics with its racist fans and flag-waving and leave football alone. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.